Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and uh, I hope you've all recovered from the incredibly hot day we had yesterday. Uh, It's going to be quite hot today today and so if you're getting down to the major march down at uh, Parliament Steps at uh, 10.30 here in Melbourne uh, to uh, press the issue on Invasion Day, then make sure you take a lot of water, an umbrella or hats and uh, slip slop slap because uh, it could be a long day but it will be an extraordinary day. It was quite interesting to read some of the SMSs that came in uh, the other day for uh, uh, Talk Back With Attitude. There was one that uh, I noticed uh, which said, it told a real truth, actually. It said that uh, uh, originally when people began to rally around the issue of Invasion Day and the inappropriateness of Australia Day uh, celebrating uh, an ongoing frontier war, uh, that uh, originally when people came together that uh, it was a very small scattered group of people and it was considered to be a very far right, far left radical sort of uh, loopy thing to be doing except for the main protagonist, of course, the Indigenous community. But now there are thousands of people who are actually collecting around this particular issue and in Melbourne anyway, uh, when the official Australia Day uh, march goes down uh, Swanston Street, it is generally diluted by a much bigger march that comes down the hill from uh, Parliament House. Earlier today, there was a dawn dawn service for uh, Indigenous uh, peoples uh, led by Lydia Thorpe down at the King's Domain. All these strange uh, parcels of land that we've all got named after English royalty. In fact, I didn't even know that that parcel of land was called uh, King's Domain. I needed to be given instructions about where to go to it. But anyway, it's all filed away with uh, Empire... Uh, type names. Anyway, today on Solidarity Breakfast, we take up the cudgel and uh, first up, we're going to hear from Molly Duggins, who's a, she's a, um, an academic and uh, she was at a ev- event that was held at Melbourne University at the end of last year and it was around uh, reframing uh, the issues of uh, the, the, uh, Post the colonial experience of uh, 
Australia and its uh, representation, how it is represented. And Molly gave this really quite interesting talk around um, violence in the drawing room. Uh, what she was talking about was this study that she'd been doing around a particular scrapbook that a uh, Victorian, um, I mean literally Queen Victorian, Victorian age Australian uh, young woman from uh, the uh, middle class or uh, landed uh, business group uh, had put together uh, as an example of uh, an activity that was done by many, many uh, relatively well-heeled people, young women, uh, to uh, as an amusement. And it was used like uh, musical activities to uh, describe the world around them and to seen as a, a way of uh, <clears throat> communicating and uh, being an entertainment. And uh, what she po- what she discovered was this particular uh, album intersperses flowery Victoriana with images of uh, frontier war in Australia, which was very peculiar. And so her discussion, I'll leave it to her to discuss what it is that she, the issues that she draws from this. So her talk is called uh, Violence in the Drawing Room. So we'll hear first off from Molly uh, Molly Duggins. Okay, so my talk today is entitled Violence in the Drawing Room, Frontier Imagery in the Colonial Album. Focusing on an album compiled in Adelaide between 1856 and 1865 by Eliza Young Husband, daughter of William Young Husband, a pastoralist and shipping merchant who pioneered the navigation of the Murray River, this paper considers how images of colonial settlement were sentimentalized through album assemblage. One of the most pervasive forms of domestic production and consumption in the 19th century, albums were widely circulated throughout the British colonies and were encoded with contemporary ideals of femininity. Album compilation offered a malleable medium for women to advertise artistic accomplishments, fashion social identity, and forge sentimental ties through the display and exchange of artwork, keepsakes, and inscriptions. So in many ways, they kind of functioned as um, miniature homes, mobile domiciles that could be circulated throughout the spaces of empire. And this is something that I'm very interested in, thinking about how the album itself performs many of the the rituals associated with domesticity um, in the 19th century. (coughs) Typical of women's albums from the mid-19th century... Eliza's album presents a topography of taste in its assembled picturesque views of European and Australian scenery, flower paintings, embossed scraps, and poetry intended for display in the drawing room. Imagery associated with the lily, Eliza's nickname, features prominently from floral bouquets to a poem entitled Lily of the Murray, in which she is envisioned as a tall and queen-like naturalized flower, an acclimatized Antipodean maiden blossoming with promise, something which I've, something which I've argued elsewhere, a subject which I'm quite interested in. Um, and you can see uh, this bouquet is just one example where we have that very prominent central white lily, um, presumably uh, referencing the compiler of the book, Eliza um, herself. 
uh, beautiful, very decorative, um, ornamental binding uh, on the album. I'm showing you the front cover here. Um, it's got wonderful um, floral end papers, green and beige end papers inside as well. So the entire object references the decorative scheme of the Victorian uh, home and by extension garden uh, in this period. So, however, interspersed amongst these flowery pages are images of an inhospitable Australian landscape distinguished by frontier conflict, notably two drawings by William Oswald Hodgkinson relating to the Victorian exploring expedition. While such images provide critical visual evidence of the legacy of violence associated with colonial settlement, their original reception remains understudied. I propose that the documentary value of Hodgkinson's drawings was subsumed in the sentimental framework of Young Husband's album and its malleable social, memorial, and artistic narratives. The drawings acquired significance as mementos of the relationship between Young Husband and Hodgkinson, while their, their arrangement in the album and its display in the drawing room, a symbolic bastion of colonial domesticity, served to enshrine the expedition imagery within a sentimental re-envisioning of colonial progress. Hodgkinson, a young man of 25, who, according to his obituary in the bulletin, quote, loved fighting, drinking, adventure, and the ladies, left Melbourne, where he was working as a journalist for the age, to join the Birkenwills expedition at Swan Hill. He traveled with a supply party led by William Wright, reaching Corleato Creek, near the border of New South Wales and Queensland, on the 30th of March, 1861. And so he produced two drawings of the expedition, significant eyewitness imagery identified in 2007 through the acquisition of Young Husband's album by the National Library of Australia. So I'm showing you the first image here. Um, it's his pencil sketch of the meager camp of Corleato. And it's very much distinguished by a, a sense of desolation. I mean, it's a pencil, it's monochrome, but even so, there's this sense of kind of... Uh, sublime vastness of the space. Um, uh, so Wright, his expedition, uh, the leader of the expedition, his diary was printed in installments in the Argus and it provides context for the scene, suggesting the dreary environment and poor health of a number of the expedition members, including Ludwig, L Ludwig Becker, the artist and naturalist <laughs> appointed to the expedition, and the cook, William Purcell, who were both suffering from overexertion and a poor diet. So I quote from Wright's diary. At 8 p.m., we reached Corleato Creek. I had a tent put up for Mr. Becker and Purcell, who were unable to proceed further. We found the creek running, though dry, a few days before. Morning broke piercingly cold with a cloudy sky and drizzling rain. I did not think it prudent to move with so many sick. Hodgkinson's sketch depicts the fickle creek in the foreground, with Becker and Purcell's tents pitched nearby. Two camels and two expedition members are also visible, hovering near desiccated trees and brush. In the midground, three Aboriginal figures, members of the Wankamara people, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, Wankumara people, witness the scene, stal stalwart sentinels that echo the trio of trees on the ridge in the background. So Hodgkinson also penned a poem, which I, I'm including in the, in the full image. You can see beneath the roundel um, with the pencil sketch as is a, is a poem um, that he penned to accompany this sketch. It romanticizes the threat that this treacherous landscape posed to European explorers. Arid sand hills crowned with pine, tainted water, mirage fine, withered shrubs and thorny ground may amid this scene be found. 
Why should memory here retrace features destitute of grace, spots which nature's angry hand clothes with mounds of burning sand? This the reason briefly told, foolish mortals prize as gold every memory of the past with danger linked or death or cast. So one could argue that his um, artistic abilities were perhaps better than his poetic skill, but nevertheless. Um, So after Corleato, Wright and his party traveled on a further 20 miles to the Buller River in the southwest corner of Queensland. It was here that Becker and Purcell eventually died. Frequent and strained contact between the exhibition party and the local Aboriginal people ensued, and Wright ordered the construction of an improvised stockade. Hodgkinson records this climactic moment of conflict between these two groups in his second drawing in Young Husband's album entitled Bulla. Wright's published diary again provides narration for the scene. Quote, At about 11 o'clock on Saturday, April 27th, a body of natives, numbering between 40 and 50, could be seen advancing towards us from the west, not seeking any cover, but marching in good order straight across the open plain. On this occasion, I saw plainly that they meant mischief, as they were all painted and bore more spears than we had seen on any former occasion. Despite all my motions for them to stop, they had approached within a few yards of us before I gave the order to fire. A few discharges repulsed them, but as they collected again, I fired a rifle at them and effectually dispersed them. Such eyewitness imagery of frontier conflict is rare in the colonial archive. In 2010, the National Library acquired another such image from the 1840s by Domville Taylor, owner of a station in the Darling Downs. Taylor portrays a squatter reprisal against the local Aboriginal people who had banded together to harry the settlers by blocking the main supply route from Morton Bay to the Downs. With a sense of great immediacy and movement, Taylor depicts 11 European men firing on a group of fleeing Aboriginal men, women, and children. So I've just shown you the two images here together. I apologize, they are quite confronting, um, uh, something that we uh, heard about a bit earlier today, uh, one of the issues of looking at things in the, in the archive. Um, I just want you to note that the kind of they depict different moments in a way. So uh, Hodgkinson's scene uh, is that, that kind of uh, moment right before. You can see the rifles have been fired, um, but no one has been hit or shot yet, presumably, from the sketch, whereas you can certainly make out... Um, fleeing uh, families and and fallen figures um, in Taylor's image. So pretty terribly disturbing, visceral, violent scenes. Um, uh, Now what's interesting is that they were both found in women's albums from the period. Uh, Taylor's um, was found in an album compiled by Patty Folks, the stepmother of Donville Taylor, um, which, like Eliza's album, contains a miscellany of flowery poems and poetry, poems and pictures, sorry, So these two examples suggest the importance of women's albums in preserving frontier imagery. Their integration into the pictorial programs of women's albums, moreover, suggests an intriguing aspect of colonial discourse that is now lost. How would such imagery have been displayed and discussed within the drawing room setting for which the album was intended as a form of polite, genteel entertainment? Hodgkinson survived the expedition and presented these drawings as well as a poem expressing his gratitude uh, for his friendship with Eliza to her before before being appointed to the South Australian Burke Relief Expedition, which left Adelaide on August 14th. Such tokens of affection were by no means unusual. Compiled in the years leading up to her marriage to Henry Shipster in 1864, Eliza's album contains many such contributions, suggesting its significance in fostering relationships for eligible women in colonial society. 
the inherent tactility of the album experience encouraged a tangible connection with those who contributed material. In order to peer at an album together, a couple had to sit within inches of each other to share the same view, and this closeness encouraged an intimate exchange of conversation and body language. You're on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, what we're listening to is a discussion by uh, a presentation by Molly Duggins, and it was at a at a um, event that was held at the Australia Institute at uh, Melbourne university just at the end of uh, 2018 it was about reframing colonialism and her study is about uh, a look at uh, how scrapbooking and uh, the propaganda phase of uh, Australian uh, colonialism was uh, how how it fitted in to the consciousness of the people who came to take over Australia it's quite fascinating and uh Rebecca's here. G'day, Rebecca. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, and later you're going to take us on a journey, a musical journey of... Uh, uh, just a bit of decolonising the airwaves. Yeah, 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 good idea. But anyway, we'll continue with what Molly Duggins has said. I find this completely creepy. I yeah. think this whole thing is so creepy, but absolutely fascinating. Other contributions in the album include a decorative pencil study of shells on a bed of seaweed by Eliza's husband, Henry Shipster, dated to a year after their wedding, and a corroboree scene at Wallaroo Bay, South Australia, by the artist William Wyatt. Wyatt's portrayal belongs to a significant genre of colonial corroboree painting that presents a romanticized vision of indigenous culture seemingly incompatible with the advancement of European civilization. Um, and this genre has been written about by uh, Anita Calloway and Candace Bruce. Uh, and they talk about how um, there's many common characteristics in this, um, uh, in this genre. We often have a nighttime scene, a moonlit scene, which uh, creates this kind of sense of drama and atmosphere, you know, kind of spotlit by the, the fire. Uh, and this wonderful kind of regimented rhythm of uh, the movement of the figures, of the dancers, which is often <coughs> echoed um, by the landscape itself as if they're uh, kind of communing or partaking in the scene. And you can certainly see that with the row of trees, um, the trunks and branches of which seem to kind of mimic um, the overlapping uh, appendages, legs and arms of the dancing figures. So Wyatt is also likely behind an inscription on another page in Eliza's album displaying a trio of decorative scraps. And um, he's written on this, this open book at the bottom uh, he pretends it's a book about Australian flora, and then he says, <coughs> respectfully dedicated to the best dancer in the place, uh, signed W.W., um, presumably Wyatt, again suggesting their meeting um, you know, uh, in a social environment uh, and engaging in um, courtship or friendship. So clearly such images operated as a form of sentimental exchange and provided a social context for Hodgkins's contribution. Intended as a flirtatious conversation piece, his gifted imagery further responded to the contemporary appetite for illustrated accounts of exploration and travel that highlighted the adversity of the Australian landscape in the face of colonial progress. The ill-fated Birkenwills expedition was widely covered by the colonial and British presses at the time, which would have been read and discussed in the drawing room. Eliza's family had a particular interest in the expedition, 
Her father's associate in the Murray River Steam Navigation Company, Captain Francis Cadell, had offered to transport the expedition supplies from Melbourne to Adelaide by ship and then up the Murray and Darling Rivers, but was refused by Burke in response to Cadell's initial opposition to his appointment as expedition leader. The decision to proceed with supplies overland critically hindered the expedition's progress. A lithograph after a drawing by Becker in the Liza's album depicts the heavily burdened expedition wagons, horses, and camels slowly advancing through the Victorian countryside. Dominated by an ancient crater, the sublime vastness of this landscape is effectively conveyed by Becker with the human imprint of the expedition dwarfed by this primordial geological wonder. And I'm actually showing you the original here because um, for some reason the quality of the reproduction of the lithograph in Eliza's album was quite poor. Um, So this is the original drawing, um, which is in the State Library here, uh, and there's a copy, a print, um, in Eliza's album. Becker's drawing of the expedition train crossing the crater bears interesting parallels to another in Eliza's album, a sketch of the steamboat Corio crossing the sandbar at the mouth of the Murray River on its first outward voyage in 1857. The sketch is accompanied by an inscription stating, Miss Young Husband was the first English lady who ever crossed that long dreaded obstruction to Australia's inland river. Is it possible that Eliza fancied herself contributing in her own small way to the settlement of the colony, playing the role of the pioneer through her participation in the inaugural steam navigation of the Murray River? Indeed, earlier in 1853, she was selected to perform the christening of the Eureka, the barge that accompanied the Lady Augusta, a paddle steamer built by Captain Cadle, on its maiden voyage along the length of the unnavigated Murray. Wearing, according to the press report, a wreath of pretty native flowers in her hair, proud of her dignified office, Eliza embodied a sentimental narrative of colonial progress. This idea of sentimental inscription, of the sentimental inscription of settlement, pervades Eliza's album, and I'd like to now consider how the Birkenwills imagery can be read in this light. An extension of the home and garden, the album functioned as a space wherein women could exercise their feminine prerogative to culturize the colonial environment through the art of arrangement, a decorative aesthetic encoded with ideals of order and harmony. Through snipping and cutting, painting and pasting material onto pages, album compilation enacted the domestic ritual of arrangement, synthesizing disparate contents. Significantly, the Burke and Wills images in the album are not displayed consecutively, but are interspersed with romantic imagery. And so you can see we have Shipster's study of shells, Becker's um, uh, sketch of the expedition, then we've got this lovely sketch of a woman with an album or a book on her lap gazing out the window, Then we have Hodgkinson's um, desolate scene of Corleato. Uh, We've got Wyatt's corroboree scene, then Hodgkinson's poem, then Bulla, and then a pencil, unfinished pencil sketch of a scene from Twelfth Night of of Viola. So this is the order in which the images appear in the album. So these images are further further integrated into the sentimental platform of Eliza's album through the repeated visual motif of an oval format or frame, commonly used in contemporary print culture to inscribe scenic views. Eliza's album contains several conventional examples of romantic European imagery framed in this way, including the windswept Welsh mountain setting of Shakespeare's Cymbeline and the ruins of a Gothic church. And um, 
on this image here, uh, I don't know if you can make out, but you can actually see the kind of embossed um, pattern uh, printed into the paper itself in relief. So you've got this wonderful um, oval or frame, um, and then it's inside this kind of floral cartouche. So wh whoever has painted this lovely you know, romantic sketch has kind of um, framed it within this decorative um, uh, context uh, of the embossed page. The Australian landscape is also subjected to such sentimental inscription. An oval format is naturally achieved through the use of a gum leaf as a support for an oil painting of a tranquil lake scene graced with waterfowl and framed by eucalypts. Such gum leaf painting was produced by colonial amateur artists as a bush curiosity and was displayed at a number of um, exhibitions where it contributed to the sentimental inscription of Australia flora, Australian flora into an emerging nationalist identity. Um, but I think these bush leaf paintings do much more than that. Um, thinking about what Caroline Jordan has argued, um, uh, that they kind of conflate microcosm with macrocosm. We have an actual gum leaf used as a support for a scene depicting gum leaves, and you've got this wonderful kind of avenue from um, empirical observation into the picturesque. Uh, so I think they represent kind of uh, the quintessential example of uh, the colonial picturesque. A link can be drawn between this painted gum leaf and the reef of native flowers that Eliza wore in her hair to herald the launch of the Lady Augusta, suggesting the reef's traditional role as a form of commemoration and effective enclosure. On another album page, a painted garland of forget-me-nots frames the top of a poem dedicated to this flower, a popular symbol of the everlasting bonds of sentiment at the time. Such wreaths were typical in album arrangements and other forms of 19th century women's amateur art and craftwork, contributing to visual and material landscapes inscribed in sentiment and nostalgia. Even the cover of Eliza's album, with its floral wreath encircling an arrangement of, of flowers and fruit, subscribes to this visual language, suggesting the memorial capacity of the album as a repository for keepsakes and signaling the sentimental content within. Read in this light, Hodgkinson's drawing of Corleato and Wyatt's corroboree scene are romantically memorialized in Eliza's album. The antithesis of the picturesque river scene painted on a gum leaf, Hodgkinson's image of an outback water hole formed by hostile nature is transformed by its circular frame from the sublime to the sentimental, aided, of course, by his rhyming verse, thus mitigating the desolation and death associated with the expedition. Wyatt's oval corroboree scene provides a similarly sentimentalized image that more obliquely alludes to colonial advancement. With the recent discovery of large quantities of copper in 1859, the development of mining at Wallaroo became integral to the narrative of colonial progress in South Australia. Wyatt's circumscribed vision of traditional Aboriginal culture at this location, much like a cordoned-off museum exhibit, effectively consigns its indigenous subjects to a fictionalized prehistory of settlement. As album compilers selecting and arranging this imagery, colonial women like Eliza were instrumental in the enshrinement of such settler fantasies through this process of sentimental inscription. So to end with the most difficult image, Hodgkinson's bulla is not inscribed in an oval format like the scenes of Corleato or the corroboree at Wallaroo Bay. It is not picturesque or romantic or sentimentalized. 
save perhaps for, for Hodgkin, Hodgkinson's obvious bias in favor of the expedition members, who appear as the ragtag underdogs in their makeshift stockade, defending themselves against the regimented, apparently endless line of approaching Aboriginal figures. Their movements echoed by the scraggy brush on the ridge they pass over, as if the very landscape itself is attacking the settlers. Through its integration in Eliza's album, the image was sentimentalized for a contemporary 19th century audience, however. Its incongruous arrangement amongst ornamental still lifes and scenes from Shakespeare tempers the impact of such firsthand testimony of frontier violence, which is neutralized through its inscription in the decorative and memorializing trajectory of the album. Relegated to the past through commemorative display in the drawing room, a civilized zone far removed from such conflict, the incorporation of Hodgkinson's imagery in the album reveals the crucial part that album assemblage played in the sentimental inscription of the colonial frontier. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Cause you don't know the words Words are hard to remember When they mean nothing at all To the hearts are still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem When your anthem's absurd Every year 3CR marks Invasion Day with special programming that gives voice to the ongoing struggle for land justice in this country Stood up for justice Stood up for truth Our shows cover the real history of Australia, cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune into 3CR on Saturday, January 26 for coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues. Yeah, well, this uh, this uh, Invasion Day, 3CR, as usual, is going to be there on the spot. And uh, it's uh, uh, we're starting at 9.30. Our coverage is starting at 9.30. The general uh, people might have thought it was going to be 10.30, but no, we're beginning early. There's going to be, after Solidarity Breakfast, there's going to be uh, Palestine, Palestine Remembers. And following that at 9.30, we're going to start our Invasion Day broadcast. It will run till about 4 o'clock. There's many things. We'll do some crosses to other places in the country. And uh, we'll also be on site at the steps at uh, Victoria Par- Victorian Parliament at 10.30 before the big march that generally uh, happens after that. You've been to these various marches, uh, Rebecca? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. and uh, one of the things that I notice about the uh, Invasion Day marches is that they, they set up a brisk pace. Yeah. They are fast walkers. <laughs> they are fast walkers. Yeah, but there's so many people as well that it, it kind of do, it doesn't seem to matter. No, that's exactly yeah. right. I, I just just remembering because uh, I being doing uh, recording, I'm always ah, trying to yes. work out where the best place yes. to be. No, and, and you never <laughs> want to be caught in the middle, and no. you always want to be in the right place at the right time. So, right. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. Another story. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's another you story. Can just, yeah. I remember a few years ago, um, I was there with Izzy Brown and she had her, like, her, uh, trolley the sound system in the trolley and we were basically at the back of the whole thing just uh yeah. you know uh, trailing along so that wasn't a fast pace <laughs> pushing <laughs> well, the right. trolley <laughs> so everybody has different experiences yes. at these particular events but yeah. they are quite amazing this is an amazing uh, earth-shattering and absolutely important pivotal uh, time in Australia's identification of itself. Yep. And uh, last week, of course, was the uh, memorial for Tanaminawe and Malboihini yep. uh, outside uh, um, RMIT in that uh, Franklin Street section yeah. uh, uh, as a memorial to the first uh, two uh, Aboriginal men hung at, as they fought their fight for freedom. Uh, and uh, that memorial is the first uh, publicly uh, auspiced uh, memorial to the frontier wars. So history continues. The shape of Australian identity continues to yes. change. So what what have you got for us? Yeah, so today I know uh, 3CR plays a lot of Indigenous music, um, but yeah, I just wanted to share some some of the music I've been listening to um, recently, and uh, yeah, why why I think it's uh, important to me and um, Australia. So, what's yeah. the first one you're going uh, to do? The first one is by a Baker Boy, who incidentally just won Young Australian of the Year. <laughs> 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 it's an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and um, a lot, you've probably a lot of people would have heard this song, Maranya. Um, yeah, and I just really love it because he's uh, he's got well, he's very fresh. He's a young young guy from uh, Young Yolngu man and uh he's using language in his mm. songs but also yeah really contemporary and yeah a lot of fun too you're on solidarity breakfast i'm a proud black young boy with the killer flow listen to the year that here listen to it blow for the boys young boys all the way from my land era for you need to laugh with that this in era young boy and double go Mama, what the 
Great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and as I was saying before, I really love hearing language, uh, yeah, in in music and also um, I've been learning a few West Papuan songs and I really love to, yeah, listen to to my friends singing in their languages and just how how um, vibrant and their, their faces just light up when they're singing in their mother tongues. Yeah. yeah, and as I was saying, um, I'm old enough to have uh, seen the progressive introduction of uh, language, Aboriginal languages, into song as uh, people have taken over the mic, effectively, and are uh, uh, introducing the rest of us to uh, their power of their languages. Uh, mm. And you were saying that... Uh, the connection between uh, language and uh, culture. culture. Yeah. Yeah, it's – you can't really separate the two. Uh, and so, yeah, it's one of the things that is kind of – gives evidence as to the loss of culture is just how how many communities have lost their language and how much knowledge is lost through that like uh, knowledge about plants and medicine and, yeah. Also, it's incredibly focused uh, attack yes. on uh, people when they weed out people's language. Yep. Uh, and it was. It was a focused attack on the local communities of Australia. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, we're now moving on to uh, perhaps a bit greater respect for uh, people, uh, yeah. what what other choices have you got to t- take our solidarity listeners, uh, breakfast uh, yep. listeners through? So I've got a Lady Lash song. Have you heard Lady Lash before? Oh, I've she's heard. A, we've got an, an a, um, ID for Lady Lash. Oh, uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, she's a local uh, woman and she has an amazing voice and also does hip-hop. So here's one from her called World Gone Silly. The world can silly and 
we still don't know why. Trying to find themselves shifted in this next life. Witness no love for sweet love individually. That's why the souls are lost in constant insecurities. Living life in the fast lane, moving like a chess game. We could only try and make a change. Life's too short, not always so sweet. Some make a sport out of abuse in the weak Fighting for peace and fighting for sanity. But we're still rolling in the same old reality. Finding peace within yourself is the power. Instead of running a hundred miles an hour. Teaching what's right to our sons and daughters. Now we're waiting on the new world order. And I don't know why these kids keep crying. And I don't know why these kids keep dying. What you gonna do? Oh, that's so cool. 
I'll have to say it's very cool. And in fact, um, the music that is coming out of uh, the mouths of Ooh. of Indigenous people is quite uh, amazing. I'll have to say, we we uh, the rest of um, the Australian community are blessed. I'd have to say with yeah. uh, the contributions that are coming. Uh, forth in the musical terms. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, Rebecca's decolonising our brains with some uh, fantastic uh, Indigenous music. Yeah, and I think this is one way we can do it every day because, uh, yeah, it's really good to get out there in the streets today and send a message, but also we need to, as settlers, we need to decolonise our lives every day Yeah, and uh, remember that. Yeah, this colonisation is still going on. Uh, it's not a past event. No, yeah. So there are things we can do every day and, uh, yeah, sharing this music is part of that. Yeah. One of the song that goes to the, uh, um, uh, uh, the announcement uh, that 3CR about the Invasion Day mm-hmm. events that are on today and if you're down at uh, Parliament uh, Victoria... Parliament on in Melbourne at ten thirty. That's where their uh, uh, people are meeting. Uh, it's got the words are great. It goes uh, something uh, if you can't remember the words to the anthem because they're silly and they yeah. don't make any sense. Uh, I mean, <laughs> paraphrasing. Uh, it's probably yeah. true because uh, very few people can actually sing the Australian anthem. Yes, uh, <laughs> maybe we can sing the first verse. Maybe, but after that, no way. Yeah. Lost, yeah. lost. Yeah. Anyway, well pointed, I thought. Yes. <laughs> anyway, what's up, what's up next? Yeah, we're going to hear uh, Native Tongue by Mojo Juju. Uh, and it's also featuring the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Pacifica Vic- Vittoria Choir. So, yeah, this one's had a, a fair bit of airplay, but it's, a, it's really awesome. I don't know 
Goodness, that really gets into you, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, great song. Who's that? Mojo Juju. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, Rebecca, and we're here on Invasion Day, and we're uh, in the process of decolonising, decolonising by listening to more of the music of Indigenous Australians who are in the process of reshaping the uh, Australian identity, uh, making sure that, what is it, uh, Australia has a black heart. History. A black history. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I I feel like it took me a little while to uh, appreciate Gormal. Um, I, I know a lot of people... Just immediately just, are, yeah. are, are taken over yes, by yes. his uh, um, his um, voice. Yeah, yeah, but it took me a while. Like, mum always had the the music at home, but yeah, I kind of didn't connect with it. But then a few years ago, I think maybe after I saw him like in person um, at Baranga Festival, uh, yeah, then yeah, I was just blown away. What was um, that like that to see him actually well. perform? Because I have not seen, I did not yeah. see him perform. It was, well, actually the first time I saw him live, he was, uh, he just rocked up because it was in um, the area where it's his communities. And um, yeah, so he, in Yongu uh, country. And so he, he was, he just rocked up at the kids' disco and just started doing a song at the disco. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, so that was the first time I and saw so, him. And so when he did that, did everybody just stop to yes, listen? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. And what was the reaction of the kids? Yeah, they were all dancing and, yeah, it was 
Oh, that's yeah, very cool. excited. And then because that, that was actually the night before the uh, the festival started. Mm-hmm. So then he also performed at the festival. Uh, but, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And just also seeing how how connected he was to his people and the land. Yeah. Um, Have you seen the, the movie that they made? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. quite an extraordinary um, piece of filmmaking. Yep. But it gives you a real idea of what you're just saying, that um, purpose, the purpose, and yeah. and also the complete difference between what, what he thought he was doing yes. or why he was doing what he was doing yeah. as a cultural ambassador mm. and the uh, disassociation of musical expression by the capitalist system. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it's very striking in the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's hear a song from Gormal.
Hello, this is Dan Sultan, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne.
Whoa, there you go. And I suppose we should have done a language warning. We apologise. We were just in the groove. Yeah. Yeah, so that song was uh, by AV Original. You would have had Briggs in there and, uh, yeah, Dan Sultan singing that amazing chorus. Yeah, it's good good stuff. G'day, Humphrey, how are you on oh, this very day? well, and how are you? You survived yesterday morning, obviously. Yes, yes. Oh, what a, a very hot uh, weather. We've been uh, having very well, hot weather down here. I'm, we've got the, you know, the Invasion Day March that starts in a couple of hours and I'm marching across Commonwealth Avenue Bridge to the embassy. I'm preparing various kinds of ways to keep cool, but there'll be thousands there, so um, that'll cheer us on as well. Yeah, that's Um, right. Take an umbrella. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one solution. I mean, anyway, we... we, (laughs) The weather is one aspect of it, but um, what we're going to talk about today, fortunately, Overland has published this essay. Yeah, and I'll put the link up for people. Yeah, please, yeah. That's... I mean, I'm... Delighted that Overland has taken this up because it does give the material a way to get around that it wouldn't otherwise do if I was just sending it out to a few people who pass it on to them. Um, and the reason I did it, I mean, I did a, a version of it a couple of years ago because, you know, when it all started then, I thought, oh, God, you know, there's so much opinion and so little information. I thought, well... That must be I... the story of your life, Humphrey. Oh, well, <laughs> Well, yeah, that's why you exist. I don't have opinions too, but if you want to get across to people, I've found over the years, I mean, I can say the most radical things to conservative audiences, and they will listen to me if I provide some basic information and I present it in a rational and particularly humorous way. It always helps. But talking in your reasonable voice. I put on my voice. And put on your suit. I put, yes, well, mm. uh, the uh, not today. No. The, uh, the, uh, but so much of this still is just about people with opinions about things without any attempt to, to base it in anything. I mean, the extreme example, I suppose, the two of them we've seen, is that the deputy, the deputy leader of the National Party thought the 26th of January was about the arrival of Captain Cook. Ah. Uh, you know, you <laughs> Slip think, showing. Well, I mean, you just think... I mean, they want to have citizenship tests for people before they become citizens. There could be citizenship tests for people before they're allowed to go into Parliament. <laughs> you know, they don't know a few basic things like that. Can I mean, you imagine I just, doing a citizenship test for a baby that's just born? Yeah. It's oh, the ludicrous, well, ludicrous nation of it well, all. Well, I mean, some of these people, their knowledge of the country is they're members of Parliament and Cabinet Ministers, and they have about the same knowledge as the newborn baby, it appears. And I, I was amused earlier, well, only a couple of days ago, I think, I suspect that um, that Matthew Flinders has risen from the grave in order to haunt Scott Morrison about who actually circumnavigated Australia first. Oh, who did he think was? Cook. Cook. Well, we don't, well, I don't... Oh, I see. I mean, so, who so, do we so. know what he thinks? Yeah. But this I don't man, listen to him. I, I, I've seen him in real life and I've decided I'm never going to listen to him <laughs> again. Well, I know. Well, I know. There's so many, <laughs> so many reasons not to. But, you know, this notion that... You know, you're going to reenact the Cook voyage. Well, that's one thing. That would mean they'd well, sail yeah. past Sydney Harbour, they'd get wrecked at Cooktown, but they're not going to do that. Instead of which, they're going to circumnavigate Australia, which he never did. Um, no, of course not. And of course, part of the reason he didn't do it is because he knew uh, that the other, you know, the place was already called New Holland. 
and that he accepted as part of British strategy that they weren't going to antagonise the Dutch any further because the reason, in the end, why they send the First Fleet out to Sydney is because in those wars between Britain and France, which went on for about 120 years, um, there were the Dutch, who were sometimes the allies of Britain, sometimes the, well, the forced allies of the French. And at this point, they'd had a fight with the... Um, um, the British had had a fight with the Dutch, and they thought they wouldn't be able to get through what is now Indonesia. And so, in order to get to the China tea trade, and that's what it's you know, it all about, really all about, uh, for the East India Company, remind ourselves, which was running all of this, the East India Company had a monopoly over all trade coming out of Asia. That's right. So the British government, who was you know, supporting them, of course, and they supporting the British government, um, they decided they would, they would establish a trading post um, somewhere so that they could avoid the problems of getting blocked if they tried to go through the Indonesian archipelago. Yeah, so on the east coast of... You know, yeah, so yeah. they got there. Now, there are two other things they need, we've got to remember in this. And I mean, this is important about why there is a... Um, uh, any kind of incursion, which is all they were doing in 1788. I mean, the invasion took, you know, didn't get started, took somewhat later. Um, they just got this little, you know, hanging on by their, their fingernails, really. I mean, they almost starved to death. That's right. um, uh, but anyway, the other two things they wanted was flax out of New Zealand, which Cook had reported on, and also the prospect of these... Um, of the Norfolk Island pines. pines and the reason like the for that is that Britain ruled the waves and by ruling the waves, it controlled world trade and it gave Britain the power to do all the other things around the world, like to continue this war with the French. And You know, it's that- interesting, the economics, the fluidity of economics, like the Norfolk pines required for masts for sailing ships, uh part of trade yeah. is very similar to the fluidity and now of course people they're just decorative um in a sense mm-hmm. uh, yeah. coming from warnable i know this um <laughs> but uh it changed the face of history just as uh the fluidity that you point out about the the date for oh, australia wow. well yes well, we should stop we should get beyond the reasons for settlement but it is important just one more thing about this because it is so important from a left marxist point of view they did not dump convicts here rule one value is added only by human labor convicts embody human labor you do not throw the source of value away the reason there were convicts in the hulks in the thames is because the navy used them to dredge the thames that's right they were labor and the they re- sold people to uh, the americas that well, was a very they interesting sold, yeah point. i mean there were 40,000 sold they so- money was transacted yeah, to, to, to buy. private and, prisons. You know, and people who were in debt sold themselves into sort of bondage for seven years to get a, the kind of thing that goes on with people trying to get out of India and China today and going to the money lenders. That's mm. right. Nothing you know, changes, eh? Well, they just find different forms. I mean, the world, the nature of the global system changes, and they find different ways of doing it. So let's not have any more of this nonsense about dumping convicts out here. This was human labour to add value. And it was the Royal Navy that used them in England. Um, 
and they were, and, you know, and so that's why they were here. Um, yeah. Now, as you say, the thing about Australia Day itself has changed so often. Um, you know, it's a well, it's a movable feast, and one of the intriguing things about it, of course, is for a lot of the time. Australia Day, when it was, when it came and went, I mean, you know, it wasn't always there as anything that people were very interested in. But, but from about the 18, mid 1830s onwards, Australia Day is an anti-British activity. It's asserting <laughs> Australianism. Let's bring that back. Over Britain. Now, the one example earlier, which we mustn't leave out, no, of, you know, why we're going to do it, is that on the 20th anniversary, of course, in 1808, something very important happened. The rich and powerful overthrew the British government. That's right. Uh, it was the called the Rum Rebellion, rebellion uh, the popular way of putting it. But the big landowners and the rich and the, you know, the, the military officers around this opposed Governor Bly's policy of supporting the smaller settlers and they felt, OK, our property rights are being um, challenged. We'll do what we'll always do, which is to overthrow the government. So when people talk about, oh, you know... Where, you know, these conservatives going on talking about how they're upholding the British connection and um, constitutional rule and all of these things. We mad, need to remind they? them that that's not how they behave when push comes to shove. No, mad, mad stuff. Yeah. So that's an important thing. When we think about the, you know, uh, the 26th of January, one anniversary is to remind people about the Rum Rebellion and John MacArthur and all that lot. Maybe but, that should be their Australia Day. Well, uh, no, I've been, well, I've been, you know, I've been, I don't think it's up to me or you or any one of us to say what we think Australia Day should be. I mean, I'm a bit inclined to think we could probably do without one. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. You know, but you know, but that's because you know we have no feudal past. You know, I mean, most other countries, well, not all, but, you know, lots of countries have some kind of feudal past and therefore having a national anthem and having a, a national flag and national day, all of those things are leftovers from that. One of the ways in which we could assert how different we are, if that's what you want to do, is to say, OK, we're not going to have a flag. We're not going to have an anthem. Later on, I hope, we are going to have what I hope will one day become the national song and dance. I'm all in favour of having a national song and dance. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, these other trappings uh, of leftover of feudal ways of doing things, you know, it wouldn't hurt if we could get our heads out of that. But I don't think we're going to get there in a hurry. But if, if I had to pick a date, as I say in the article, why not eight-hour day? Mm. You know, because one of the things that puzzles me about the way in which they cling to the 26th of January is that the only Australians involved on that day were the people who were opposed to it, the Aborigines. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's bizarre that a country would have a national day in which none of its citizens were actually involved. I mean, if you think of Bastille Day, you know, it's the French Revolution. I mean, every other country, when it picks on a national day, picks on something that the local population actually did, whether you're in favour of it or against it. Here, we've managed to pick on a day in which the only people who were Australians who actually engaged on the day were opposed to the landing. Uh, this is a very strange way to treat your history and to, and to treat what kind of people you think you are. But from the 30s, 1830s onwards anyway, 
uh, it becomes a way in which the more progressive and radical forces in the society object to the rule of the of the people who did the Rum Rebellion and the Conservatives. And that starts as a battle from 1837, 1838, when they're coming around to the 50th anniversary. And if we jump forward to the 20th century, again, and Andy, you won't be totally surprised to hear this, it's the Irish Catholics who promote Australia Day. Yeah, this, that, I found that really uh, interesting. So it has... Uh, it has um Propaganda leaks, that's what it's really about, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it was then. Uh, I, mean, I mean, Empire Day comes into existence to try and cover up the monumental war crimes that the British had performed in South Africa. Mm. You know, 30,000 Boer women and children die in these... In, the British invent concentration camps and put the Boer women and children into them, and along with about 12,000 African servants who die there as well. Now, this was outrage. You know, I mean, parts of Britain would simply outrage. The man who becomes a British Prime Minister says, this is not war, this is crime. Um, and in order to cover this up, they decide, oh, we'll, we'll invent this new thing called Empire Day. And that's 1906, but we get it here. Well, a few years later, the Irish, with the revival of the Irish independence movement at home, they decide that what they'll do is that they'll, they'll promote something called Australia Day. Um, so Australia Day... And this was uh, to be distinct from uh, the Empire? Oh, very much. And also, I mean, the Irish Catholics here had always continued to do so with St Patrick's Day, uh, but Australia Day was to be promoted as a way of putting a line between us and the British imperialists. And it, that element continues. And the first government to kind of you know, acknowledge the long-term existence of, of Australia Day is Jack Lang's government in New South Wales in eight, ni- 1932, at a time in which they... Are, well, he's about to get overthrown, um, um, not by the Rum Rebellion, but... Uh, but by the British Imperial Governor, Governor Game, yeah, who... Uh, for failing to pay his debts. Well, for saying that, that Australia should get a moratorium on the interest rate. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't... What is it even pay. the debt? You know, that we got... You know, that at this time, when interest rates are falling around the world, all of the... You know, we should get some of this as well. Um, and no, 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 no. Bob Menzies was saying, as he said, I mean, you can't believe this. He actually said, I would rather that every Australian man, woman and child died of starvation than that we should repudiate our debts to the old country. You know, you imagine who was going to die first. It certainly wasn't Bob <laughs> Menzies <laughs> and his audience. Going to be him. You know, no, yeah, they were going to die of starvation. <laughs> but, I mean, that's the kind of mentality. So that when Jack Lang puts this forward in 1932, um, this again is a very radical um, pushing forward of, 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 the, of the notion of Australia Day, and that, of course, you know, also grows out of that Irish Catholic thing around New South Wales. And, and then, of course, as we know, the next bit that's very important, and that fortunately there's been quite a lot of talk about this in the last couple of years, is, is in 1938, on the 150th anniversary when when Aborigines in Victoria and in New South Wales get together and protest against when they first call Invasion Day. 
Uh, and out of that comes a number of Aboriginal organisations which, over a process of several decades, end up with the kind of celebrations that we now have as NADOC Week and all kinds of other things. But they all grow back out of that. Uh, but the dates, of course, of NADOC Week uh, and for National Aboriginal Day have shifted as well um, around the calendar from the first half of the year as well. So, yeah, it is very much a movable feast. Now, look, I don't think that any of this information in the um, Overland article is going to change the opinion of the rusted on on the other side because it isn't a bait here. You know, why they hold these views is not about, oh, they haven't got the right information. It's about other things. It's about emotional things. It's about, you know, prejudices and all of that. Oh, it's, it's about, you know, the, the business of uh, wanting to have uh, finance uh, schools of Western civilizations in uh, various universities around the country. The well, it's a, yeah, I mean, that I think, I mean, we've got to see, I mean, I think that is a good sign because it indicates that they're on the defensive. Yeah, well, certainly. You know, I mean, you know, they, I mean, there was a time in which that was, you know, the history courses, that's what they were. Yes. In the last 40 years, that's been changed. And now they're, they're beginning to fight back. So we see that they are, that they feel they're on the defensive. So giving them information and things isn't going to change it. But I think you know, there's a huge number of people who are open-minded about this. They are... You know, they, they want to do something to celebrate all the things that they think are worthwhile in Australia, but they're uncomfortable about doing it on the day in which um, so many Australians, the Aborigines, it, it led to so many bad consequences for them. Well, so well the, it's about actually uh, owning up and fronting real history, isn't it? Um, you, you know, like everybody thinks that they're good fellas. But um, so it's hard to uh, swallow a bitter pill. I mean, if we go back to the business of developing the notion that it is a day of mourning, which you've already mentioned, you know, mm. with the Aboriginal Advancement League and the uh, Progressive Association 1938. Uh, if, if we jump to another point that you make, which is that uh, – in Queensland, Wayne Goss. It was oh, when yeah. Wayne Goss decided that they were going to erase the term of uh, from of invasion from school curriculum. That really tells you something, doesn't it? Well, it tells you how frightened they are yeah. of their political opponent instead of taking the fight up to them. I mean, that's what we've got to do. Well, that's it's a shame. I, you know, it's that's a shame what I hope, you know, the article in Overland does. It provides information now for school teachers and for the general public to, to get these ideas out. Because the other thing about... But not only do we have senior cabinet ministers who clearly don't know the first thing about the history of European um, activities in Australia. I mean, you just mentioned settlement. I have a friend in South Australia who refers to the unsettlers. Yeah, well, that's right. Mm-hmm. I was going to say... It's a lovely could... phrase. Yeah, it? it's yeah. a great phrase. Anyway, um, but I mean, that what they should have done... Um, having at a time in which the nationals were still on the nose because of the corruption up in Queensland, they had this perfect opportunity to push forward and say, we do not accept the kind of educational agenda that the Bajelki-Peterson regime had forced on Queensland schools. We can break from this and we can help people move forward with a whole other set of alternative um, ideas and and presenting them with other kinds of evidence. But they were so 
that are scared. And, of course, Rudd was the advisor in all of this, you know, um, behind the scenes. So, you know, it, it, it continues on through all of there. So when he gets up to make the apology, of course, he has to apologise for his own previous behaviour, which he didn't quite manage to do. But part of the problems we have, of course, is that as you read the Overland article, you realise how complicated the story is. There's no kind Lots you know, of interests, different you know, you power interests. You can't boil it down to one sentence. Um, and people find that, you know, when, <clears throat> in the current world where people, you know, kind of think, you know, 124 characters is a long read, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's... you. But the people, I think, people do want to be better informed. That, you know, now the debate is underway, that this this is contested in the way that it is, the opportunity just to say, look, whatever side you're on in this, it's a more complicated story. Well, I'll tell you, it's been reported here, and probably because all the media outlets uh, are one, almost of, as one, yeah. uh, that Kennett has uh, decided that it, you know, it, you know, done put his name to a piece about uh, how, you know, it doesn't really matter if this is the date or not, you know, that, you know, yeah. we can change it. That actually points to what you're saying. They, This is really just a propaganda tool, which people of his ilk aren't particularly enamoured. It, it's, it, 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 it doesn't matter. It, if mm. it loses its propaganda appeal, then it can be... Rearranged yep. for yep. them yeah. quite happily. Yeah. They don't care. Or like Anzac Day or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that, 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 no, <laughs> that. I mean, I no, mean, that's one another. Thing, not yeah, that, I know. That's so another thing. Sorry. You shift it. But you know, who knows mm. what some of those people actually think happened oh, that's on right. the twenty fifth of April? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that's you, know, probably... you know that that's interesting because uh, you know the thing with the Anzac Day and the thing with the. Uh, uh, you point out in your article that the whole business about a- uh, Australia Day, and I remember this quite clearly, it, it was 1994 yep. that it became a national day. And that, mm. and never in my entire life has this jingoism. It's the same with uh, Anzac, I'll have to say. I know Anzac's got a particular place in all this, but they were, they, it was like they kick-started yeah. the Nation Harley Davidson in, in order to get people to be completely overcome yes. with this bullshit. Well, and it grew out of the protests around the bicentennial. Yeah, oh, it just yeah. went uh, on and on. You know, I mean, they, you know, the, the Aborigines and their, and their supporters rained on Hawke's uh, bicentennial parade yeah. um, and their... Uh, Three years later was the opportunity for the 75th anniversary of the landing at Gallipoli. And mm. it was the Labor government, um, if you could still say we had a Labor Party then, and probably you could, it's only a year or two later, I think, that you know you think, no, there's no more Labor Party, and the old-style Labor Party, um, that, that at that point they then decide they're going to put all this support behind the notion of ANZAC again. People blame it on Howard. No, well, Howard did a lot, but he didn't start it. No. He started way back then. And the thing that I object to, as much as anything about the 1994 decision, is that it used to be a long weekend. Mm. I mean, as I say in there, I mean, if we have uh, eight-hour day as the, as the national day, which I think, you know, has a you know, pretty good reason. I mean, the other thing we need to remember is why don't why isn't every Monday a public holiday? Why don't we have a thirty-two-hour week? Good um, on you. You know, I mean, these are things that we were moving towards. 
uh, 20, 30 years ago. And now, of course, God, a 40-hour week would be a blessing for yeah. most people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all of these complicated stories. Um, and one of the things I think we can be pleased about is that people are beginning to be interested in them and to take it seriously as to how we should think about ourselves and our relations with each other and what this might mean for the future of the country. And also, I think maybe like questioning our own identities, and that's why, like, yeah, more questions are being asked. Like, young people are asking, oh, "Who am I in this space?" You know. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, because I mean, these are social questions. I mean, the thing that worries me about identity politics is it all comes down to the individual. Mm. It is bourgeois individualism gone mad. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, I mean. The kind of per- well, look simply. The kind of person each of us is began because we were socialised in a family or a household. That's how we learned to speak. Um, wasn't you know I wasn't born speaking English. No. I mean, if I'd been born somewhere else, I'd have spoken a different language. Oh, These you are know, you know, uh, we must go. Yeah, we must go. Next time we speak, this would be worth. Let, let's go yeah, to let's Ingalls. Go in this let, let's go into the politics. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Okay, lovely. Bye bye. Have a good match. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, I'll, I shall try and stay vertical. That's <laughs> yes, a good one, Humphrey. Yeah, and uh, so that's the end of our program today, Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, We're going to be playing unusually. It's uh, uh, Palestine Remembers next, not Asia Pacific Currents, but uh, they'll be back live very shortly in the... in, I think they're here next week, actually, Asia Pacific Currents. But uh, we're going to have uh, Palestine Remembers. And then at half past nine, we're going to start the 3CR's Invasion Day broadcast. The uh, If you want to get down to the steps, 10.30 uh, Victoria Parliament, that's where the large gathering is going to be. And uh, thanks very much for uh, decolonising us with music, <laughs> Rebecca. Uh, I just wanted to say as well, Mojo Juju will be playing at the festival at um, Ballot Naran after, after the march. Cool. Yeah, and uh, also the um, Brothers in Arms, which is a, a dance group uh, that uh, has Aboriginal young people and also West Papuans dancing together. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. All right, so there you heard it on 3CR. We're going to leave with uh, uh, Humphrey's request. This is Ellie Mills. Come and walk you, but my dear little mommy. Remember that I 
Cause you don't know the words Words are hard to remember When they mean nothing at all To the heart who's still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem When your anthems of You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.